Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Today, we're here with Steve Shane. Steve is with Hoban Law Group uh, out of Pennsylvania. Um, he's with the New Practice and Financial Services Group. Um, Hoban is one of the few, uh, or maybe the only, law firm specifically dedicated and focused on cannabis and hemp. So, uh, pleasure to have you on, Steve. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's great being here, Bruce. Thank you. And so, what I like just kind of start having guests tell us uh, a little bit about themselves, a little bit of a professional background and how they got into cannabis. So give us, uh, give us the background. How did you, uh, how did you start? Well, I was kidnapped, Bruce. I was kidnapped <laughs> from a thriving banking law, reputable practice. And somehow they got me into this marijuana. Don't ask, you know how, no, I'm a banking attorney. I've been dealing with financial services and banking for yeah. a long time. I've been practicing law 29 years at the bar and banking and cash management's a huge issue in legalized marijuana. So as things changed, banking in America changed very much in 2010 with the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act. Yeah. So that changed things and consolidated brick and mortar banking is dying. Last year, 2,600 branches of banks closed, not the individual banks, but the branches of the banks, wow. because there's less and less need for it. So banks consolidate. So it was time to bring my skill set somewhere else. And I guess marijuana yeah. got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess when did you start working on the mar marijuana focus and the cannabis focus? How long we ago? Got we got to come to a you know measurement here because every year in legalized marijuana is like seven years in every other industry. Yeah, yeah. So I first started uh, practicing in legalized marijuana about three and a half years ago. Okay. 
And what, uh, and when you started, what were the big issues or what were you focused on uh, in terms of actually the legal services you were providing and to whom? The main thing in legal, legalized marijuana is sort of deflating expectations. Yeah. Legalized marijuana is absolutely filled with malarkey. And one of our, we have a lot of great <laughs> sayings in the industry. Yeah. And one of the sayings is, when there's gold and then there are hills, start selling picks and shovels. Yeah, exactly. So when you say you're a marijuana attorney, you could fill your days just talking on the phone to people and answering questions because they think it's impossible to lose money in legalized marijuana when, in fact, the opposite is true. Yeah. Most legalized marijuana businesses actually fail. So when I got started in it, there's really two aspects to legalized marijuana. There's what's called plant touching and non-plant touching. Exactly. On the plant touching side, it's people who want to grow, process, sell, or transport marijuana. Mm-hmm. On the non-plant touching side, it's a range of stuff. My particular expertise is in what's called financial services. So everybody thought they had a better light bulb. They're going to create a way that you can handle what we call either operational cash or legacy cash. Operational cash is the money that's coming across the counter at at dispensaries today. And marijuana is primarily a 100% cash business. Legacy cash is a little more interesting. Legacy cash is the cash that, I don't know, buried under a porch somewhere in, shall we say, Humboldt County, California, that somebody forgot to pay the 85% effective tax rate we have on marijuana. Marijuana suffers an 85% effective tax rate on the dispensary end. So that sort of stuff, people find a way to essentially, what are they going to do with that money now? How do they find financial services? So I got calls from people initially, both trying to find some ways to either deposit their cash or people who said, I have prepaid cards. Our bank wants to do this. We have some form of electronic or cryptocurrency. We have some other solution. And I fell from there. Um, as I, I wasn't kidding when I said before that in legalized marijuana, each year is like seven years in yeah. every other industry. So as we speak today, 30 or 31 states, the District of Columbia and the Commonwealth of Guam and Puerto Rico have some form of legalized marijuana. It wasn't that way three and a half years ago. In fact, three and a half years ago, the real hot spot, believe it or not, was Puerto Rico. Everybody wanted to have an enterprise in Puerto Rico because they have a very favorable tax structure. And it was believed that reciprocity would have been a big deal, meaning that because so few states had legalized marijuana programs, if you had a card from California, you could go down to Puerto Rico. But in the oh, ensuing couple yeah. of years, things change. Maryland, uh, Puerto Rico's economy and the terrible uh, troubles they've had with yeah. weather and other issues down there has changed that and make it not quite the epicenter of legalized marijuana. Yeah. So um, so let's just unpack just briefly for those people that aren't super familiar with the sort of the, the regulation, the laws and stuff around the financial side. And is it useful to kind of categorize this as the plant touching and non-plant touching? Is that a big distinction for you in terms of how this stuff? Yes. Up, all right. So let's talk about plant touching. If you're a plant touching business, what ends up coming into play or why do you have these kind of financial regulation law issues in terms of operating your your practice? Um, not a problem. We call this the waterfall. We're going to go down the waterfall, Bruce. Awesome. So at the top of the waterfall, we have what's called the Controlled Substance Act. Yep. The Controlled Substance Act says that it is 100% illegal under federal law to grow, process, sell, transport, or possess marijuana. Mm-hmm. As we go a little further down the waterfall, we encounter a body of law called the Bank Secrecy Act. The Bank Secrecy Act is concerned really with money laundering. And because anything that is 100% violative of federal law, any cash generated, theoretically, if I'm a dispensary, which is a plant 
touching enterprise. I deposit a check for $12 that I've received from there or cash for $12. I am doing money laundering. So I'm trying to take illegal money under federal law and deposit an illegal thing. So as a result of that, it became a very complex situation. Marijuana has been a cash business and it's still a cash business for a lot of reasons. Number one, honestly, people didn't want to pay taxes and they were trying to get paid in cash to avoid that, paid everybody else in cash. But secondly, banks didn't want to do it. Even though the laws of 30 states, the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Guam and Puerto Rico have some form of legalized marijuana, still 100% illegal under federal law. And then in 2014, what was called the FinCEN guidance was issued. And the FinCEN guidance is really comes from the Treasury Department, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Mm-hmm. And what they said is, okay, there's a there's a breathtaking amount of cash out there. We're not going to say whether this is legal or not, but you, the bank, not the marijuana-related businesses, and for the purposes of the rest of our talk today, let's just call anybody who's a plant-touching enterprise, whether you grow, process, sell, or transport marijuana, yeah. you're a plant-touching company. We'll call them marijuana-related businesses. And the FinCEN guidance said to the banks, which we'll call financial institutions, mm-hmm. hey, financial institutions, we're not saying this is legal or not, but if you observe these guidelines, you have less of a chance of breaking the law, less of a chance of being prosecuted. So the FinCEN guidance is divided into two things. One thing is a series of due diligence steps a financial institution has to take before they start banking a marijuana-related business. The second aspect of that are what are called the SARS reports. With every deposit or withdrawal, a financial institution has to file a report with the Treasury, which stands for Suspicious Activity Report. So in in doing that, there's three types of SARS. One is for any deposit or withdrawal from a marijuana-related business bank account. Number two is if there's anything fishy, if you're seeing what what is deemed suspicious activity, that's another SARS report that has to be filed. And the third thing is called a termination report. If somebody pulls away and closes an account that you, turns out, did marijuana-related business, you have to file that report. Now, from the bank's point of view, just just one of the one of the real, you know, so interesting. I saw a speaker uh, a while back, and he said something which I think was probably the greatest thing I've heard in legalized marijuana. (laughs) He said that everybody I meet wants to be in the cannabis business. In truth, they want to be in cannabis. I want to be in business, and that's the problem. In legalized marijuana, people thought that the illegal practices would be accepted. That I would say, okay, now it's legal. Go right ahead, and that's not true. With the increasing legalization by state, and hopefully, God willing, federally, you're going to have to conform to all the other laws that are out there. So if anybody wants a bank account or wants to hold on to their bank account, because that's a whole other issue, banks kick people out, you have to start thinking like a banker. Here's how a banker thinks. A banker is only interested in two things. Number one, profitability. Number two, risk it can manage. Banks are not afraid of risk. Banking is based on risk. If you look back at the subprime mortgage lending in America not that long ago, the whole notion of it is that we hire interest rate for riskier borrowers. So banks are fine with risk, but you got to be able to manage it. And in legalized marijuana, the compliance with the FinCEN guidelines is very, very expensive. So now banks that exist, there are plus or minus that I'm aware of, 43 or 44 banks at the moment providing financial services to marijuana-related businesses. Most of them charge at least $5,000 per 
month per account. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're offsetting their operational costs for the bank to actually have these accounts through. It's just through the fees, just through an account fee, or are they charging other? Are they charging percentages in other ways? Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. I look to the biggest bank in legalized marijuana today, and that's Partners Credit Partners Colorado Credit Union Safe Harbor, mm-hmm. and they do half of the marijuana banking in the entire state of Colorado, which last year did $1.5 billion in gross sales. Last year, $85 million per month came through Safe Harbor. So they have 12 or 13 employees. That full-time job is doing all the due diligence and the SARS reporting. And for better or for worse, I happen to find the uh, marijuana industry delightful and charming, but I'm not running a bank. And people who are, shall we say, flamboyant don't always dot the I's and cross the T's. Which brings us back to the second aspect of risk you can manage, and a bank has to go in there and make very sure. Now, we're not going to talk about it today, but there's an approximately 85% onerous tax rate, effective tax rate, on legalized marijuana enterprises. That phrase is so ridiculous, I'm going to say it again, (laughs) that if you run a dispensary, there's a strong possibility of an 85% effective tax rate. As a result of that, there are a lot of businesses that were in, let's say, three different markets. There's the market in which I work, which is the white market. All my clients are transparent, Mm -hmm. compliant with the laws, and hopefully profitable. There's the black market. That's pretty easy. They're the opposite. They're doing whatever the hell they want to do. They're growing marijuana illegally. They're selling it illegally, and they're not paying tax. And that's fairly easy to assess that risk. What's not easy to measure is what's called the gray market. And we saw a lot of people start marijuana-related businesses. They got it going, and they actually realized, oh, my God, I'm paying 85% (laughs) in tax. How am I going to pay my utilities, my employees? Little interesting side note here. Because marijuana is 100% illegal under federal law, you can't file bankruptcy. So people, yeah, people who got licensed to grow, process, sell, and transport marijuana all of a sudden said, what the hell have I done? I now have a huge tax liability. I can't discharge it in bankruptcy. I'm going to lose everything. I get none of the protections. So as a result, we saw a lot of people who sold legally through the front door, and then they sold illegally through the back door. And that's what's called the gray market. People keep two sets of books. So if you're a financial institution and you've got to really worry about that sort of thing, how you're going to deal with it and how you're going to assess that risk. So frequently, uh, banks would come in there and discover all kinds of discrepancies. What's really interesting is that the discrepancies the public fears don't really happen. The real issues are what every small business does. Now, small businesses often make loans to themselves and don't adequately document that. Small businesses often fail to adequately comply with corporate formalities in the terms of having meetings, having officers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. That's fatal to a marijuana-related business from a banking point of view because they have to justify your existence. So FinCEN issued a report, as it does every quarter. I think the last report was at the end of the uh, third quarter, no, second quarter of 2018, and they said there are 414 banks in America that Mm -hmm. filed SARS report. But that doesn't mean there are 414 banks that are willingly doing marijuana-related banking. Instead, here's what we got. There's four types of banks that filed SARS reports. Number one, Partners Colorado Credit Union, a bank that's totally open, out there. They're doing this. They're charging their fees. They're doing it, and they're serving our industry. Number two, the one-off. 
The one-off is the bank that's doing it for the really big client. When Mr. Rockefeller came to the bank and said, hey, listen, my nephew's getting into the dope trade. If you don't give him a bank account, I'm pulling out my $5 billion. They said, okay, we'll do it for you, Mr. Rockefeller, but for nobody else. The third kind of bank that filed a SARS report (laughs) are ones that are shocked. 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 Oh, who knew? And and some of that's not complete malarkey because when people open bank accounts, they often say general health and wellness. Or when they open the bank account, they're pre-licensed, and they actually are not a marijuana-related business yet. More often than not, I think it's a disconnect between the people who are on the front end who say, I get compensated for every account I open. It's the C-level executives saying no. So Wells Fargo was shocked to learn they had 17,000 accounts. And and the fourth fourth, uh, bank that filed a SARS report is the kind of bank that used to provide financial services to marijuana-related business. And the bellwether there is Las Vegas. After Colorado, which is the biggest, and California, and California is where the industry is going to end up. Half Mm -hmm. the marijuana that's consumed in America is consumed in California. Yeah. Half. Uh, Fifth largest economy in the world. But after Colorado and California, the next biggest market, as I see, is Nevada. And Nevada is virtually impossible to find a bank. There was a bank there called Kirkwood. Kirkwood closed because they couldn't make a profit doing this. The key, now they closed before adult use came, but the key to making a profit from a bank's point of view is economies of scale. So I'm calling you from beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania today. We only have 37 marijuana related businesses in Philadelphia, excuse me, in Pennsylvania, and they're spread across the entire Commonwealth. So if you want a bank, Let's say one bank did all the banking for all 37, which is possible. Mm-hmm. They'd have to physically get all the cash somehow, somewhere, which is its own problem. And once that's done, you know, you're talking about a total of 37 clients. That's really not a lot yeah. for marijuana-related banking purposes. Yeah. It would be sort of hard to justify keeping people employed just for that. So if I'm a plant-touching business, I, I really need to be prepared to work with my banker, understand the regulation, the reporting that they have to do to be able to you know, properly kind of manage and report on my account. And I need to be you know, understanding of the fees they're charging. I also need to be understanding of the data and the information they need and access to, to my business and my books if I'm going to have kind of a healthy banking relationship. Yes, but there's so much more to it. So we have a young growing industry that's seeking help from a dying industry. Brick and mortar bank is yeah. dying as a result of the passage in 2010 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which in itself has plus or minus 27,000 pages of regulations. Oh, it's very hard for a bank to comply. There's a saying in financial services, and it's going to sound funny to people in legalized marijuana, yeah. but in financial services, they say any bank that has less than a billion dollars in assets is a zombie bank. Now, a billion dollars in assets sounds like a lot, and it yeah. is a lot of money, but it's yeah. not like they're just sitting in a room. But the fact of the matter is the cost of complying with all this stuff is so expensive, you have to reach an economies of scale. Brick-and-mortar banking is dying, yeah. and there's two levels of banking. There's federal and there's state-chartered. Big banks like Bank of America, Wells Fargo yeah. are, are strong. They're not in trouble. Smaller community banks that have $85 million in assets are very weak. So all those banks... It's not fair. Many of those banks are really praying, can I be acquired? Can I merge? Can I do stuff like that? So they're trying, they don't really know what the future holds. A lot of them think marijuana may be the answer for them, and it may be, but you have to be in the right place like California, Colorado, Oregon. Um, Anyway, 
those banks are scared. They, they just don't know what to do. So when you're dealing with those people, you have to realize that, number one, believe it or not, they actually kind of work for you. They're, you they're, you're yeah. giving them your money and they're getting interest. So they have a vested interest in you. Number two, how do you make their job easier? Quick story, client in Colorado, very dear client of, of my firm. And again, my firm is the Hoban Law Group. We're yeah. 44 attorneys. You described us a little bit before. I wouldn't say that we're the best at what we do. I'd say we're the only ones who do what yeah. we do. Okay. We have 14 offices across the globe. We're centered in Denver, Colorado, where marijuana is centered. But we have an office in Anchorage, Alaska, and Boca Raton, and Kentucky, and Chicago, and Texas. I run PA in Jersey. We've got New York, Boston. we got Kiev, Ukraine. We're the, we got Holland. We got the only ones who do what we do. Yeah. This is a longstanding client in Colorado. And he guy told me, he goes, uh, weirdest thing. I'm banking with the same bank three years, three years. And he goes, uh, they kicked me out the other day. <laughs> and I go, why? He goes, well, I went there and they go, call Mr. Smith. They go, Mr. Smith, your money stinks. And he goes, right, but you, you know what, what I did? I've been growing, processing, selling marijuana yeah. for three years. And they said, no, no, your money smells. Money's made out, of co- made out of cotton. The cotton absorbs the smell. And for some reason, this client kept oh, it next so to the thing. There's something when you remove the, the good stuff from marijuana, yeah. the bad stuff's often called poop soup, believe it or not. Yeah. And that smell permeated the cotton-based thing. And the bank didn't, the people were complaining, <laughs> I don't want to count this guy's money anymore. Now, that's a, it, it had, now I don't know if this is true, but, but that if that's amazing. the case, had he just physically known that, maybe he wouldn't have to go the rigmarole of losing a bank. Yeah. So you have to understand the pain of the people if you want financial services, what they're dealing with. So make their life easy. If you're presenting them, are you presenting them cash, how many deposits, yeah. how, how easy are you to deal with, that, that kind of stuff, just basic stuff. Yeah. It, the basic rules of running a business are no different in, in, yeah. in, in uh, legalized marijuana. If you like your vendor, you're going to take care of them, and they're going to take care of you. Yeah, and I, I think that's really the, the kind of takeaway. Is, is, you know, it's got to be a business relationship, a productive business relationship for both sides, so understanding what their needs are, their situation, helping them make their job easier, right. you know, and, and whatever you can do. So, um, so if you're not a plant-touching business, how how does all this affect you? Does it affect you? If so, how? Like, what do I need to think about if I'm not touching the plant, but I'm still kind of dealing in the market? What ends up happening? That's a, that's a really good question. So we have to expand the definition, and this is something that can go well beyond our half hour. But we've been talking now about financial services strictly defined as a depository account with a bank okay. where yeah. you can deposit money. But there's other issues too. There are loans which is banks are able to do. And there's also what are called merchant services yeah. where you're able to buy stuff with a credit card. Now I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I'm going to expand the definition of what we're doing. Up to this point, all we've been talking about is legalized marijuana, yeah. but our industry is so much greater. Yeah. What we're really talking about too is cannabis. And that involves what we call hemp just yeah. for purposes of definition, three plants, indica, sativa, ruderalis. If you extract stuff from mature stems and stalks and there's less than 0.3% THC, that's real. That's a definition for the purpose of today of hemp. Mm-hmm. Hemp comes in two forms. It has oil-based and fibrous. Oil-based, it has health and wellness. It has beauty. It has food additive applications. Yep. On the fiber side, well, that's industrial feed and hempcrete and that kind of stuff. Yep. So right now, the biggest issue really in merchant ser- is merchant services for hemp derived products. Okay, yeah. Why do I say that? There's a craze out there for CBD. And I, I'm not yeah. sure why, even though this is what I do for a living. It's not, if you look at any oil-based hemp-derived product, it's full spectrum, nobody cares. 
But if you have the magic letters C, B, D on a bottle, oh, it's going to cure all your woes. It's going to make you young again. It's going to help you sleep. But that's the perception. Yeah. Um, so most of that stuff sold over the internet. And and although there's a lot of brick and mortar stores, a lot of really great products are sold that way. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you need to have a credit card processor that deal with that. So when you have a merchant services provider, they have to have a bank account. So theoretically, under this very broad definition, we could say, although I'm not saying this, but if you think that hemp falls in the definition of marijuana, I do not. There's a division of authority there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would say, okay, the people who grow, process, and sell the hemp, they're plant touching. What about the guy providing merchant services? Well, it's very hard to find merchant services for hemp-derived products. Banks are very reluctant to do it. Changing the uh, discussion, just, just tweaking a little bit, we saw very, very, very very disturbing guidance from the Small Business Administration in April. The SBA has certain loans. Basic confusion is that the SBA is issuing the loans. The Small Business Administration does not issue the loans, but they insure loans by certain member banks. So let's say Bank of America qualifies for the SBA program. They can issue loans to people, and the SBA insures or guarantees the loans. Okay, the SBA put out a guidance that SBA loans couldn't be used for anyone growing, processing, or selling marijuana, number Mm -hmm. one. Number two, anyone growing, processing, or selling any hemp. And number three, anybody deriving any income whatsoever from the sale of marijuana. And a special section in that guidance, which carved out landlords, if you're a commercial Uh, landlord. But theoretically, since all of my income, pretty much, or a large portion, comes from supporting... I would not qualify for an SBA loan. And other than the process, other than the problem I have with this, and I have a hell of a lot of problems with it, yeah. is that if you look at the history of the SBA loans, who are they intended for? Small businesses, yeah. veteran-owned, women-owned, minority-owned businesses. Yeah. And that's a disproportionate, hopefully, hopefully have a large percentage of that legalized marijuana industrial hemp. Yeah. So the SBA took a really awful position. So theoretically, if you, for lack of a better word, do interior design work and you go repair the shell of a dispensary, exactly. they could pull your SBA loan. Wow. And, so, and why do you think, I mean, so why why make that clarification? Why why did they do that? What was their, is this protectionist? They're trying to not get into federal issues with this? I mean, what, I don't understand their, their thinking. <laughs> everybody has a different definition. <laughs> the great thing about legalized marijuana is everybody's a genius. I've yeah. never met anybody who <laughs> legalized marijuana. I didn't have it all figured out. I'm going to go with a traditional lawyer's point of view, which is just slop. I think there's a lot of different laws out there. People don't understand them, and they don't match up. For example, the Controlled Substance Act is a piece of federal legislation. The Farm Bill is a piece of federal legislation. The Controlled Substance Act is enforced by by an agency called the Drug Enforcement Agency. Mm -hmm. The Farm Bill is by the Department of Agriculture. The Drug Enforcement Agency has a definition of marijuana that's so intensely broad that some people might think that industrial hemp fits in there. The Department of Agriculture has a very clear definition of industrial hemp. Which which one rules? This is different now because my firm, the Hoban Law Group, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, in a case last June, I think, or, or May, we established the precedent that when in doubt, the Farm Bill definition of hemp governs, not the DEA. That didn't help me out, though, because earlier that month, I got 100 grand worth of hemp-derived product 
sitting in a post office in Pennsylvania, and the postal inspector and the in-house counsel for the United States Postal Service said, we're required to follow the DEA's definition. I said, but that's not the DEA's definition. They literally, a box, they ripped open a box on a random search, found stuff in there, and thought it was marijuana or something yeah. like that, and they impounded it. And wow. they go, but the DEA said, I said, well, first thing, you're not right, and further, it's the farm bill. But honestly, those guys, the people who enforce our laws get paid the same whether they work hard or not. Yeah. And it's awfully hard to break a sweat when you're leaving, you know, leaving the office at 425, which is what's happening here. Yeah. So I don't think the people in the, SP, in the, in the small business association said, OK, now we're going to further screw the legalized hemp and uh, uh, sorry, legalized marijuana industrial hemp industries. Yeah. I just feel that they want to do something quick and dirty and get out of the office. Yeah. And, and I think uh, honestly, I think that's happening a lot in, in various aspects of the industry. The, th- the fact that it's not clear and there is kind of, you know, there, it takes work and energy and, and thinking to actually figure out how we're going to navigate some of these things. You know, it's not it's not consistent and it hasn't been thought out. Unfortunately, you know, the way it ends up getting thought out or, or resolved is oftentimes in a court or in some kind of you know policymakers process. And you don't know. You don't know until it actually gets tested and actually goes to that level before you know it, which way it's going to fall. I would ascribe even a deeper thing to it, too, although I strongly suspect most of the people at the state, federal and local government don't want to work hard. They do want to work. So I think that the Drug Enforcement Agency really wants to hold jurisdiction over him yeah. because it employs more people. And if they employ more people, they can get a larger part of the budget. They're going to have more resources. Yeah. So I think you're seeing a war, an interagency war between the uh, DEA and the Department of Agriculture. Yeah. It's a turf war. Yeah. We well, assume was... our federal government is one monolith. That's, that's <laughs> just not true. No, yeah, absolutely. Like it's going to have internal dynamics, internal fighting, and and yeah, we'll 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 see how the how the battles kind of play out. But I think sure. I think you're right. I think that you know, be understanding that this is not not one federal government with one mind that's perfectly consistent. That you're going to have these kind of differences and dilemmas and and discrepancies over time. Um, so let's talk a little bit about because we got a couple minutes here. Let's talk a little bit about um, cryptocurrency because I know I know it's something that you mentioned earlier, and I think that it's a fascinating kind of kind of left turn on some of this stuff. How does cryptocurrency kind of shake shake up some of the industry? Where have you seen it being applied? Where do you think it's going to going to have some traction in in the in cannabis and hemp? Explain it a little bit for us. I will, but I have to give an apology first. I truly wish my wingman was here. My wingman <laughs> is Kevin Fortin, and Kevin Fortin runs the intellectual property department of our law firm, and we have totally different points of view on this. So I, I can't state Kevin's well smarter than I am. I can't state his point of view, but it's kind of a Hatfield and McCoy approach to uh, think. Um, so I'm, I'm the McCoys, I guess. I think from two points of view, as a veteran financial services attorney uh-huh. and as a presently legalized marijuana and hemp thing, I have mixed feelings about it. The fact of the matter is I have a sentimental attachment to brick and mortar banking. Yeah. I want it to exist. It employs a lot of Americans. It, 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 I think it's a very good system presently, mm-hmm. uh, but I think cryptocurrency is inevitable. I don't like it for our industry. So let me explain why, but then I'll back into it. Sure. There's two aspects that electronic or cryptocurrency will have for our industry, one of which is a store of value to service currency. Yep. The second of which is to help out funding. And that's two different aspects. So cryptocurrency can be used as a method of exchange like money, but also can be used to raise funds in a manner that's a lot swifter and a lot a lot less complicated for companies. Yep. That's called an initial coin offering. We'll call it an ICO, but yep. think of it like an IPO. Okay. Why don't I like it for legalized marijuana and industrial hemp? The future of my industry is threefold. It's got to be 
transparent. It's got to be compliant and it's got to be profitable. And the antecedents of cryptocurrency was not to have transparency. Yeah. Why Why is that? Cryptocurrency, which is just a store of value, will be the same thing as me going and saying, okay, I'm going to create a factory. I'm, I'm going to only manufacture thousands of Skittles. And each Skittles will have so much value. And I will say that I will buy even your luxurious house, Bruce, for mm-hmm. 10 Skittles. And we agree upon that. And then we record that on a ledger. The electronic ledger is called a blockchain and it can be updated. All that stuff's wonderful and provides enormous transparency as to the transaction, not to the parties. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I don't like it. Anonymous and parties. What, we, what we talked about earlier was about the difference between operational cash and legacy cash. And clearly, I don't think you need help connecting the dots. Yeah. How many times my phone is wrong saying, okay, I got a half million dollars. Don't ask me where. How do I get this <laughs> into currency and get it out? That kind of people. If, if you put yourself in that situation and next to those kind of people, nothing good's going to happen. Yes. Number two, unfortunately, as I said before, that I want to be in the, in the cannabis business. I just don't want to be in cannabis and go quick yeah. and, and cut corners. Initial coin offerings are a wonderful idea. They are going to work. The problem is they don't work presently. One and four work. Only one and four initial coin offerings, fundraisers, mm. actually succeed. And God help me what the figures are for legalized marijuana. That's yeah. for all industries. We're not exactly known for our penmanship yeah. in legalized marijuana. Yeah, exactly. So that part's not good. Back to the bank end of it, you know, you, you talk about brick and mortar banks and what value it's insured. The money is insured. Yeah. And that's a real issue. You know, part of part of the operation of business is perception and knowing that you have a quarter million dollars sitting in the uh, credit union of Humboldt County. That's insured. That's great. If you have it in cryptocurrency, it's not insured if something happens. Yeah. And, you know, proponents of cryptocurrency would argue it's safer. I don't think it is. I don't think it's any safer. I think that you're going to have fewer in incidents of disruption, but the incidents that exist will be of much greater magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. So I really don't think, and also it's not regulated, you know, ha ha ha. Everybody makes fun of the government, I guess, (laughs) you know, they have some degree of errors, but without regulation, what's going to happen? There's zero regulation on cryptocurrency. So I don't think that's great for our industry. There's another issue too, which is tax. What's a taxable event. So we represent several, and there there is a, a couple advantages to cryptocurrency on the business to consumer level, well, there's 20 that I know of. We have a client that accepts up to 28 forms of cryptocurrency in their dispensary. And there's a value to that because if you convert your money to cryptocurrency, which is electronic, mm-hmm. and you then take it to a, um, a thing, you, you have much less chance of being robbed. Yeah, exactly. There's a big issue yeah. in cash management with the safety of the consumers, the safety of the people working in the industry yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. But it's an operational nightmare. They take 28 different forms of cryptocurrency, and there's a real issue, and this is kind of inside baseball, there's a real issue of what's a taxable event. Bruce, if you had a dispensary and I went in there and I bought the classic $147 worth, that's the classic number that's taken marijuana, $147 worth of products, I give you the money, that's that. But what if I gave you $147 in cryptocurrency and it it surged in value. Yeah, exactly. You as a dispensary would have a taxable event. Further, what if it dropped in value? You'd also have a taxable event, yeah. which makes your bookkeeping and operations more complicated. Yeah, so there is, a, there, yeah. there is a value to it. 
I'll tell you one value I'll see. Here's an example. I had a client here in Pennsylvania who had a large piece of farm machinery. I actually don't remember what it was. And he wanted to sell it to somebody in California. Very nice. The person in California wanted to pay for it in cash. His bank here in Pennsylvania, let's say it's Bank of America, it wasn't, but let's say it's Bank of America, looked up the guy who wanted, he said, I'm going to come to you next week with $250,000 in cash, or better still, it's going to be deposited in California. You're going to, some guy's going to drive up in a pickup truck with 250 grand <laughs> in cash. We've been issued depositing my account. The bank did its due diligence and said, well, we looked up this guy. Apparently, his licensure to grow, process, and sell marijuana. So no, you can't do that. Yeah. Now, query for a moment how they connected those dots. He had several enterprises. We don't know where the cash really came from. Yeah. The bank just sort of prejudicially said whatever. Oh, it must be from that one, yeah. In, in this situation, if that gentleman could have reduced it to cryptocurrency, and the cryptocurrency could have, it would have facilitated that transaction a lot, lot more easily, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so lots of interesting developments. And I think that's, this is one of the fascinating things about this industry is that there's a lot of innovation, but there's a lot of things that still are getting kind of proven and worked out. Steve, this has been great. We're kind of at time, but I, th I think you've got a lot of kind of different threads going on here. If, if people want to find out more information, either, you know, specifically about the things we've talked about or more generally about legal questions associated with their business, uh, either, you know, plant touching or not, what's the best way to get a hold of you and, and get more information? Sure. The name of our law firm is the Hoban, H-O-B-A-N, Law Group. And my email address is steve at Hoban, H-O-B-A-N, dot law. Excellent. Thank you. And I'll make sure that those are in the show notes so that people can get a hold of you. Steve, this has been a pleasure. I would, I, you know, let's, let's keep in touch. And I think we could probably do another episode in a few months as some of this stuff works out, uh, you know, a key part of the business. So I appreciate the time. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.